Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back, and we're going to go right to the phone. So, by the way, after Nate's segment, the last 45 minutes of the show, uh, Bob Hicks is going to join us in studio, and we're going to talk turkey hunting. So stay tuned for that. He's a really accomplished turkey hunter. You're going to learn a lot. But let's speaking of learning a lot, let's go to the phones, and we always learn a lot from this gentleman, Mr. Nate Zielinski. Good morning. Good morning, Terry. There's uh, there's no doubt. There's uh, The spring is in the air. I bet uh, the old turkey season is probably getting a lot of guys fired up. That's for sure. Oh, and you know what? It's hard to sit in the studio right now and look out at it's going to be 70 today, Nate. And yet there's there's going to be open water fishing. There's going to be ice fishing. There's hunting opportunities. There's hiking opportunities. You can go down here. You can go up in the mountains where we have like a million inches of snow yet. It's just crazy, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's just nuts. I'll tell you, if we get one more snowstorm at places like Terryall, um, we're not going to get to the ice anymore. Right now, we are kicking snow away as hard as possible just to where we can get through with our power August to actually drill a hole. Uh, I had two situations this week at Terryall Pike Fishing um, where I drilled a hole, water came up, I thought I was good. I went to drop baits down, and the baits went down, you know, 39 inches. And, and hit, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And the auger, you know, the the blade started to crack through, but actually couldn't even punch a hole through um, to where I am literally almost needing an extension uh, at Terriol Reservoir right now to drill holes uh, to catch fish. If we get a good snowstorm and we get a little crust on top of that ice, um, we're literally going to need an extension on, uh, you know, basically here early March. So a lot of ice, a lot of snow uh, up in the high country yet. So I would say by no means is that ice fishing season going away up in the high country. Uh, but the front range is definitely getting a lot of excitement going on with open water. Well, you know, you, th- you felt like you were in Minnesota back there. We had, you know, 60, Jeez, 60 inches of ice and things like that. I do have a off kind of off topic real quick, though, with some of the heavy snow and the ice we've got in the mountains. Are you concerned at all about winter kill on any lakes? You know, it's shocking me that we're not seeing that in Ontario. Honestly, as early as we got snow in the ice at Ontario, um, I honestly thought we were going to have a major situation of winter kill this year. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not a biologist. I don't check the numbers. Um, but I am shocked that we're not seeing it. And we're not. We're not seeing any signs of it. The scuds are not up to the surface yet. Uh, the water does not have an odor. It does not have a tint. Um, you know, at this point, we're starting to get these warm days where we're getting some runoff coming into the lake. Um, so really, at this point, I think we're safe just for the fact that even though we have a, a major ice cap still, uh, and even though I don't think the ice is going anywhere any soon, we have enough water flow under the ice um, to save the situation of a winter kill. So uh, shockingly, none of the lakes that I am at, uh, you know, the South Park area, I think that is going to show signs of that winter kill. So that is a great sign. Um, I don't know how we escaped it, uh, but we did. So so things are looking good in, in those regards up there for sure. Uh, and again, I do think we're going to have a later boating season in the high country um, than normal, at least on a lot of the South Park lakes. Um, I think everybody saw some of the records low, you know, 50 below there for weeks on end at almost, you know, or high 40s. Um, so we got a lot of ice up there. So it'll definitely be a long delay. And even, you know, front range ice, you're talking about that. So you know, Boyd Reservoir open for boating. Guys are pounding walleyes on their boats in Chatfield Reservoir. Um, you know, we're definitely losing the ice quickly. Um, I, 
whether you want to call it 100% capped or 90% capped right now, um, you know, all the points are starting to open up with water. Um, you know, so the ice is deteriorating very quickly. Um, the south end of the lake still has a lot of ice. I mean, you're still on, you know, seven to nine inches of ice on the south end of Chatfield. Um, honestly, if, if you had no expansion cracks, it is still fishable. But the biggest thing right now is we have lots of ice where the ice is at. Um, but the shorelines are starting to retreat, um, and anywhere you've had expansion cracks, um, you know, those expansion cracks are opening up a foot wide, 18 inches wide, um, to where literally navigating around is getting tough. So we are definitely uh, approaching the end of the ice season down here on the front range. Um, but, again, we've all seen it. We all get these 70-degree days. We get so excited for boating, um, and it does take a while for that ice to, to leave, at least for to where CPW is going to open those lakes for, for boating. We have to be 100% ice-free, um, and we are a ways from that, at least on Chatfield, that's for sure. And Cherry Creek, uh, same thing. You know, We don't have quite as much ice on Cherry Creek as we do Chatfield, um, but we're going to need a lot of warmth and a lot of wind uh, to get that boating season started down here on the Front Range, that's for sure. You're right. It seems it's amazing how different it is down here that with Boyd opening, and I'm hearing that Lon Hagler and Douglas are getting some boats on or ready to get some boats on, and, yep. uh, and that some of the Northeast lakes, like, Sterling and all that, are, and Jackson are very close to starting to let boats on. So it's really different across the state. You Before you head out anywhere, you really have to check. By the way, how did you do on Pike at Terrio? You know, the pike season is, is exactly like it should be. Those fish are aggressive. They're in pre-spawn. Um, the fishing is very good, very, very good. Um, so, yeah, if you've ever been a pike angler and you've ever struggled um, – these are the type of days that are going to build your confidence. The later we get into the season, um, you know, we always say that pre-spawn bite starts last week of February, and it gets better and better and better until, honestly, about mid-April when we start seeing these fish actually go into the spawning phase. Um, so literally the next three weeks of the season are going to be epic for pike fishing. And, you know, a lot of times, some years we get – you know, a more mellow winter and things like that, um, you know, normally we start getting on a little bit rougher ice and we, you know, it, it's, it doesn't present the opportunities that it's going to have this year. So where this year we are on rock hard, solid ice. We're going to get uh, a very long season on those pre-spawn pike. So um, this will probably be one of those uh, premium years for pike fishing. And honestly, you have a lot of tactics for them. You can sit in a shelter and sight fish and you can drop jigs and all kinds of, you know, a variety of baits. Uh, to catch these fish you can also uh you know sit or use you know like things like an automatic fisherman or jaw jack or any of those type techniques um you know with bait to catch those fish um i will say that i am very old school when it comes to pike fishing for me i am all about tip-up fishing kind of got that midwest blood in me um and i don't think there's anything better than, than tip-up fishing you know the excitement of watching a flag fly um and honestly the excitement of the sheer power of a fish um i know this week i had a gentleman on the ice who I think we lost our first five big fish simply for the fact that he's never dealt it. He's never felt, uh, you know, what a 40-inch pike feels like when there's no rod. Uh, and a lot of us, a lot of the listeners right now, I don't think, you know, when you eliminate the rod, um, it's shocking how much power the fish have. You know, when you're pike fishing and you have a seven, eight-foot medium-heavy rod, um, you know, maybe some sort of stretch leader on there, um, it absorbs a lot of the fight of that fish. And, you know, even though we know they pull hard, it doesn't really give you that true effect. When you're on a tip-up and you're using, you know, Dacron or some sort of non-stretch line, it is directly a straight line between you and the fish, um, no cushion. 
it's crazy how hard these fish fight. So I, I love kippo fishing this time of year for those big fish. And uh, just be ready when you hook those big fish. They're going to pull a little harder than you think. Uh, and it definitely took uh, a couple of our guests this week uh, by surprise. Uh, we had a big learning curve. You know, it takes a half dozen fish before you kind of figure out how to fight those fish, how to land those fish. Uh, but it's a good time for sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's it's something that most people don't experience fishing a, a pike through the ice and then hand landing it after a, a tip up. It's a really unique experience. Um, one other thing quick before I let you go, we mentioned some of the places are ways from boating. What do you think about shore fishing though? Are you going to see that open up in a lot of these places pretty quickly? Absolutely. You know, and I, even like, like Chatfield right now, those opportunities exist. And it's crazy because this week I was still on the ice catching walleyes. And literally in an hour window, I was on the ice spooning walleyes and catching a ton of walleyes while on the ice. And I had a friend of mine uh, sitting on a point about, a, you know, say 500 yards away from me. Um, and he was catching the same amount of fish, same quality of fish, throwing jerk baits. So literally same day. Same hour, 500 yards apart. I'm pounding walleyes on the ice. He's pounding them on shore throwing jerk bait. Um, we're early enough still. We're still kind of in a good pre-spawn. Uh, we are going to see those fish migrate into more of a spawning phase here real soon. Uh, but right now, you can catch the fish from shore on jigs uh, in the low-light period. You can catch them on jerk baits. Um, I do think we're going to see the daytime activity fade um, here. And, you know, we're probably going to be strong for another week. And then after about a week, we're going to start seeing the daytime bite slow just a little bit. Um, and you're really going to see a peak window around those low light periods. So early in the day, late in the day, um, you know, at night, you're really going to see that the late phase of the pre-spawn, the early stage of the spawn really coming strong, um, you know, in the coming 10, 15 days, things like that. Uh, but yes, again, if, you're, if you are uh, a shore angler, you're not in the ice, you don't want to even hit that ice, uh, that walleye bite, all your stores that are opening up, anything with riprap, anything spawning site um, are definitely going to start producing walleyes right now for sure. You know how I know that was a fish story? Because you started out Why? with that you had a friend. and <laughs> <laughs> I almost posted pictures of it, but uh, it was a little obvious of where it's at, and my friend uh, was whacking a lot of fish. He was like, hey, man, don't blow it up on me. So uh, we're going to keep it a, a little mystery for just a second. All right. Well, if you did, if you were going fishing on this beautiful day today, give us one place you'd probably want to head to today or tomorrow. I'll tell you, if you're, if you're thinking about the ice, um, I would do a longer day fishing and tarot right now. Those big rainbows are in shallow water. We're seeing the biggest fish of the season. So big rainbows up in shallow water, you know, three, four, five feet of water. I'd do that in the morning till about noon. Um, and that pike bite is definitely an afternoon bite. So I'd trout fish in the morning for the first several hours. Uh, then I would switch over, switch to a lake that has pike in it, you know, like 11 mile, uh, hit those pike in that afternoon hours. That's going to be a surefire bite. Uh, so that would be kind of my take on the ice on open water. Same thing. I would do a major focus early in the day, late in the day, uh, down here on the front range. You can hit the points of Cherry Creek, hit the points of Chatfield. Uh, again, it might be just a sliver of water that's open, uh, but those fish are in those areas for sure. All right. How do they find you if they want more information, Nate? Absolutely. You can go to tightlineoutdoors.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook at Tightline Outdoors. We're real excited. Uh, we've been having this uh, tournament series established for a while called Catch Rate, uh, but in the coming weeks, we're going to put a lot of emphasis of announcing our open water series this year. It's called Catch Rate. Uh, if you came to ISE, you saw us release it there. We haven't talked a whole lot about Simpson, uh, but it is going to be bass, walleye, carp, and trout uh, at Chatfield Reservoir. The kickoff of the season is May 2nd, so we're going to have a ton of information coming up about Catch Rate, uh, so we can stay tuned 
for that. But again, tightlineoutdoors.com and tightlineoutdoors on Facebook is the best way to get a hold of us. All right. We will talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. You bet. That was Nate Zielinski. Always a great contributor. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back. Bob Hicks has joined me in studio. And I heard that he shot a turkey once. And he knows a little bit about pheasant hunting since he's part of that organization. And we're going to come back and we're going to mostly talk turkey hunting, but I'll bet he'll sneak some pheasant information in there too. All that more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Your arms so tight, won't you let me know everything's all right. I think we got a turkey in this room. Oh, that's me. I am a turkey. Now, that was Bob Hicks on a turkey call. Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. It's uh, What a beautiful day. Fantastic. Now, you're you're with Pheasants uh, Forever. What's your title? I'm the Regional Director of Pheasants Forever. I was going to say, that's what I was going to say, but I knew I'd be wrong. So. Okay. But um, and I imagine we'll sneak in some Pheasants Forever stuff before we're done here today. But you and I started doing radio shows on turkey hunting 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, let's, yeah, it's, uh, let's it's just say it was a while. It was a while okay. ago. Yeah. And you know, when we started, um, there was turkey opportunities in Colorado, but a lot of guys would go out of state because they weren't confident hunting here. And there was really just a core of hardcore hunters who hunted Colorado. But boy, have things changed. You know, I mean, when I first got into turkey hunting, um, you know, I hunted five years before I ever harvested a bird. I hunted three years before I ever even heard one gobble. And I hunted in the Black Hills of South Dakota. I hunted in the mountains of Colorado. They were just getting turkeys introduced out on the South Platte River in eastern Colorado, which has been a huge success, not just in our state, but nationwide. And um, it was kind of a mystery. Uh, the people that knew about it, were very tight-lipped. Um, it was obviously long before the Internet. It was before YouTube. Um, there weren't very many outdoor shows on television. And I used to buy videos and just study hunting videos. Um, and that's how I learned to call and, you know, would watch hunts over and over, which really propelled me to, to have a basic understanding. Well, a good friend of ours um, who's, you know, no longer around, Bob Saley, he wrote a book called Sultans of the Spring. Yes. And one of the things that book, and, and and him and other people, every time I've asked an avid turkey hunter, what, you know, what's the best way for me to get into turkey hunting? They tell me don't because it'll ruin your life. <laughs> it, it becomes an obsession, doesn't it? You know, the thing that, it, you know, really got me into turkey hunting, and it's the one sport I was able to introduce my father to, who I'm lucky to still have, because, um, you know, he taught me how to fish and hunt pheasants and big game, but we never turkey hunted. But it's such a different feeling when you're out there in the spring instead of in, you know, November or December or whatever it is, you know, the birds are singing, the grass is green, the smell of spring is in the air. And um, other than hearing an elk bugle or actually calling in a bull elk, there's nothing like it when when one of those birds you know gobbles um whether he's in the tree and hasn't flown down in the morning or he's you know coming up I, we call it the show and and once you see the show whether you harvested 
harvest a bird or not, you're you're hooked for life if you're an avid outdoors person. Well, one of the things with any of the calling sports is when you interact with the animal to get in its comfort zone, it's a whole different feeling. But then when you're turkey hunting, because of the stealth involved, the, f- the other things you'll see, the squirrel that runs right across your foot, the porcupine that climbs over on the tree over there, the coyote or even the wolf. Then, of course, there are no wolves in Colorado, but if there were, one would walk by. Or you might see a bear or a lynx or a bobcat. I mean, it's just incredible because you become part of the environment. And what somebody once told me with the eyesight and hearing they have, if turkeys had a sense of smell, we'd never harvest one. Yeah, I probably said that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I'm ready to go turkey hunting. I'm excited. It sounds like a great sport. The draw is over for this year, but there's still lots of opportunities. How do I get started? I mean, I, I know I have to go purchase a license. Can I do that over the counter? You can. Um, you know, um, so basically all the mountains in Colorado are open to turkey hunting by an over-the-counter license. Uh, I started hunting when I began up on the Rampart Range up toward Deckers. Um, those birds are very nomadic. Um, there's, you know, millions of acres of national forest. There's a lot of turkeys down by Westcliff. Um, you know, down south of Pueblo and those mountains, and um, even on the western slope on the Uncompadre. And then um, you can buy an over-the-counter turkey tag. Um, it's also, the same tag is also good in eastern Colorado, but that's all private property, and you have to get permission. Um, and then there's a lot of great opportunities not far out of state in both Nebraska and Kansas, Licenses are around $100, $125 in those two states, but lots of public access in those two states to go hunt turkeys in both Kansas and Nebraska. So let's say I'm starting in Colorado. This is going to be my first hunt. What are the basics that I need to know before I venture a field? And then once I, what, when do I, what equipment, what knowledge do I have to have? And then when do I start scouting? Let's go through those. Oh, um, you know got to have 100% camouflage. You're not going to be successful harvesting a turkey in the spring, uh, trying to sneak up on him or hunt him like a pheasant or hunt him even like an elk, you, you know, unless you're, you strictly got to call the bird in. Um, so if there aren't turkeys where you're trying, obviously you're not going to have much success. So scouting is, is the key to it. Um, and then once you locate, you know, some sign or actually see some birds when the season is on, you know, we try to go in the woods in the evening and hear them gobble in the tree at night. It's called roosting a bird. And if I know where that bird is in the evening, I can sneak in in the dark in the morning and set up and have a good chance of maybe calling the bird in first thing in the morning. Um, so would you would you try to hunt an area that you hadn't gone out and roosted some birds? Or I mean, I mean, you're really probably limiting your opportunities if you do. You are, and and the thing too is Terry, you know. We open up on April 11th in Colorado as our statewide opener, but we go till May 31st. And it's kind of like pheasant season. You know, everybody goes out opening day. Everybody goes out the first two weeks. And then when Thanksgiving's done, you know, most people quit hunting. And, and if they do hunt, it's only on the weekends. The best turkey hunting, especially if you're going to hunt in the mountains, happens in May. So, you know, I learned a long time ago when I used to hunt up on the Rampart Range, I left it alone for two, three weeks, and I would go up during the week once the roads got good and it really warmed up up there, and that's when I had success finding turkeys. So uh, so for people going out, don't don't get discouraged if, you're, if you go out the first two weeks. 
go back two weeks later and you may get out of the car and walk 100 yards into the forest and make a call and one gobbles right there. Now, if I'm out scouting, whether it's how soon before the season should I, if I'm going to get out that opening weekend a week before, a few days before. Yeah, I mean, just like anything, the more scouting you do, the, um, the more beneficial it's going to be for you. And, um, you know, go online, look at Colorado Parks and Wildlife website, has a ton of information, you know, Sure, you know, I used to do a lot of seminars when I had a store, but um, I know CPW has some um, courses coming up. So look at look at those opportunities, um, you know, go down to the retail stores. And I know Austin Parr is a good friend of mine. He's now getting into turkey hunting. And even though Discount Fishing Tackle is really not a hunting store, you know, find like minded people and and you know, start chatting and sharing, you know, hopefully they share some information with you. Now, should I only do scouting to try to find where birds are roosting or before I hunt, can I go there during the day and look for signs or, or do it? Can I call while I'm out there during the day? What should I do? Yeah. You know, when I'm scouting, it just, it, you know, I'll give you two quick scenarios. So let's say I'm out in Eastern Colorado or Kansas and Nebraska. It's big open country. So binoculars are going to be the most important thing I have. Look, look for the birds during the daytime with binoculars at long distances. But if I'm up at uh, Decker's Rampart Range, those, those binoculars are no good at all. So it's about legwork, getting out there. And we use a lot of calls that we call locator calls. And a crow call is probably the best call to get a bird to gobble. You can certainly get them to, to gobble at you with a, with a turkey call. But when the actual hunting's going on, what I try to teach people is I try to get the bird to give up his location without using a turkey call because then I know how far away he is and how close I might be able to get get toward him. Um, and a lot of times if you're out there calling with a turkey call, they may hear you. They may be coming in, but they come in silently. And so a lot of times in my history, I have – been been trying all my calls and and start walking ahead through the forest and here comes a big gobbler it's walking up to me and sees me and flies off and and he heard me but he never gobbled at me or maybe he gobbled but it was windy and I didn't hear him so um you know um scouting is is a matter of putting your time in especially when you're talking about hunting mountain turkeys you you got to look for tracks you got to look for droppings look for feathers um Best time to hear them gobble, which is, you know, where you can hear them from up to a half mile away, is at sunrise and sunset. That's when they're most vocal. Do you wear your camouflage when you're scouting? I, I do. I do. Um, and um, I'm not worried about um, wearing camouflage in scouting. If anything, I'm worried about wearing it during the hunting season if I'm hunting in a public area because – Turkey hunting is, in my opinion, the most dangerous hunting sport there is. We're in camouflage. We're moving around. We're not necessarily always sitting. We're using decoys a lot of times. And nowadays, they've got these decoys so lifelike, especially the gobbler decoys and the jake decoys. Um, you know, So my advice to people is if you're going to use those really high-tech decoys. Make sure they're in a bag. Don't walk around with a decoy. Um, when I used to do seminars every year, I'd always look up hunting accidents and, you know, you can't believe how many different little silly scenarios I've read about. Um, there's one 
when I was really doing a lot of seminars that happened up on the Rampart Range, and somebody snuck in on a guy that was calling and had a decoy out and, and shot. And, um, you know, so real quick about safety, you know, when you're calling, um, and sometimes we just set up and, and put decoys out and hope one hears us and comes in, you know, always lean against a tree that's wider than your back. And what that does is protects me from somebody behind possibly shooting. Um, it also um, breaks up my pattern to the turkey. So uh, I'm blended in against the tree. Um, don't ever shoot at sound or movement. And, um, you know, and don't ever set your decoys right on top of you. I, you know, I put the decoys at least 20 yards away from me. So if somebody did sneak up and was 50 yards the other side of my decoy, you know, I may get hit with the pellets, but it's not going to hurt me. Um, So I don't like to scare people, but be be careful. We're going to take a break, Bob. When we come back, um, Jr. from Colorado Clays, I'm sure you know Jr. He's going to join us, and he's been compiling a ton of information on patterning turkey guns. So we're going to take a quick timeout. We come back. He'll join us and 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. In studio with me is Bob Hicks. Uh, he's the regional director for Pheasants uh, uh, Forever, but we're talking turkey hunting and Speaking of turkeys, we're going to go right to the phones. Oh, that came out wrong. Hey, JR, how you doing? <laughs> Good morning, Terry. <laughs> I caught that. Yeah, my friend from Colorado Clays, Mr. JR, um, you'd uh, do quite a bit of research on turkey hunting yourself down there at the uh, down there at the range. Not only people can practice with all the different types of um, shotgun uh, you have uh, shotgunning stations available but you do some actual patterning and you've compiled some pretty good statistics i think yeah absolutely terry so uh i'm glad you brought that up the shotgun pattern area here at colorado clays is it's just another example of how dedicated colorado clays is to providing colorado's recreational hunting and competitive shooting enthusiasts with really the very best state-of-the-art ranges, courses, and fields to achieve whatever their marksmanship goals are. And since we are and have been Colorado's premier public shooting facility for the last 24 years now, uh, we are open to the public with no memberships required. Uh, We're open year-round, and we're just a short drive from most of Colorado's front range. But, you know, Terry, I think the first thing I should do is go ahead and just describe the uh, shotgun area. So, the Colorado Clay shotgun pattern area consists of a backstop that holds a 42 by 42 inch sheet of cardboard, which we can either make an aiming point on, or uh, you can bring your own target and attach to it. Uh, it has a shotgun lane offering uh, marked out yardages ranging from 20 to 50 yards, um, a gun rack that will hold multiple guns, picnic table for either your gear or if you want to have some sitting shot options. And, of course, the great part is it's only $10 to use the area. Um, We're in the middle of, um, you know, patterning, you know, multiples of guns right now, Terry, and starting to pile up some pretty good data. So um, here very shortly we can have some 
um, specifics on all of that uh, testing. But as it stands right now, uh, the most common use, and like you said, you can use this pattern area for any gun um, and uh, do whatever you need to. But as far as turkeys go, what we're trying to determine is maximum effective range for your combination of gun choke and ammo. And right now, of course, we're patting multiple different kinds of guns, whether they're pump semis or brake guns, um, lots of chokes, factory chokes, um, aftermarket chokes, and the same with the ammo. And the factors as it has been in the past that seem to be determining maximum effective range, which is basically the number of pellets on the target area, is, you know, for example, shot size, fewer pellets, meaning a less dense pattern at longer ranges, but with more energy. And one thing we're kind of uh, finding here, Terry, and starting to really like is some of these blends because we're ending up with some of the, the larger um, and more uh, energetic pellets combined with multiples of smaller ones and putting a lot of foot-pounds of energy on the, um, on the hit, which is good for knockdown factor. Um, the usual on a choke performance, we're finding that the aftermarket's turkey-specific choke for um, guns, you know, by application are performing better than most of the factory chokes. And I got to say, the uh, a lot of this is turning out to be individual too, Terry. And that's really the the biggest reason to come to Colorado Place is to find out what your individual um, needs are, because a lot of people have and develop. Uh, habits that we're flushing out while we're at the pattern board and uh, one of the biggest ones that's been a surprise here lately is some of these brand new guns are actually um, shooting up to 80 percent high of an aim point and uh, we've been making a lot of adjustments to guns to get to those impacts where we want them so lots of stuff going on here at Colorado Clays. Now do you see a lot of uh different guns are do a lot of the people come out and just have a gun that's specifically for turkey hunting or are they adapting a waterfall or upland game gun well and you know there are uh kind of turkey specific guns so the hardcore turkey hunters they come out here with a camouflage gun with a sling on it and maybe um, some illuminated sight type stuff and yes we do see a lot of those but we also see a lot of guys using their their pheasant or goose gun and just uh, changing the chokes and loads. And we have found that you can get really good performance from any of them. I think the turkey-specific guns seem to be more geared toward the camouflage uh, and, uh, you know, using them in turkey hunting. Um, But, yeah, we're seeing all types of guns, and we're getting good results. And uh, I'll tell you, Terry, it's just so much you can learn for a half hour on our pattern area that will carry over uh, and possibly, you know, save you from missing or messing up the shot of a lifetime. Uh, Bob, on on, on the turkey, um, you you're an avid turkey hunter, and of course you're the director for Pheasants Forever. Do you use multiple guns, or do you try to do it with one? Uh, I agree with everything Jr. said. You know, I I use a specific gun. It's just an 870. I bought a long time ago. I uh, painted it camouflage. You know, I've uh, extended. Uh, Choke tube on it, it was one of the original choke tubes in the day that was built for turkey hunting. But, you know, whether you're turkey hunting or, or pheasant hunting, you know, you got to go pattern your gun. And I've used the uh, pattern board at, at uh, pattern board at Colorado Clays. Um, 
several times myself and taken several people there. Um, I try to put it as if you're going to go elk hunting, are you going to with a rifle or or archery, whatever it is, but elk, you know, with a rifle, are you going to really go out and not go to the range before you, you shoot your elk rifle? And you should do that obviously every year because it can get bumped. I shoot my turkey on every year and I've killed lots and lots of turkeys. I like to get settled in again. I like to be confident where my pattern's hitting and um, every gun shoots differently. And I'm sure like JR has been seen, you know, if you get a new gun or you're trying to pattern a turkey gun, go buy some different brands of shells and and see what patterns best in your gun. Wouldn't you agree with that, Jr.? Uh, well, Bobby, uh, I don't know what happened to our connection. Kind of cut out some of that. What was the question? That uh, if you you should come to pattern it with maybe a variety of loads to see how they perform. Oh, certainly. Uh, I I couldn't agree more because. Uh, Terry, and I'm telling you, this is for a fact because we've proven this over the last few years, uh, particular uh, chokes and ammo perform better in a given gun, and a lot of times it's not what you think is going to be the best combo. And maximum effective range will be determined um, by the best performance of those. So the extended chokes, uh, you know, choking in a longer distance seems to give a little more uniform pellet distribution in your pattern because uh, not only are we looking for the you know the size of the pattern the overall diameter but if we've got big blowed out areas in that that could uh, or definitely is a factor and sometimes those extended chokes um, seem to make a more uh, even distribution and I believe that uh, muzzle velocity powder burn rates um, different uh, factors that go into the manufacturer of particular ammo uh, affects how the uh, shot goes through the choke and how consistent your pattern is there as well. So uh, absolutely agree with that. We only got about a minute left, but I have one question. You brought up last year when we were talking about this that you saw a real different pattern or shot where, uh, you know, aim point when the shooter changed their, their position, like from prone to sitting to standing. Uh, absolutely, Terry, and that one actually caught me off guard a little bit, um, but then um, I do recall having that issue myself in the past when I thought back on it. So, yes, there are different dynamics, um, how the gun lands on your shoulder, how your cheek uh, is on the gun and the sight picture you have, and your ability uh, to recreate that um, changes as you change positions. And the one that you're referring to specifically, Terry, is the, the sitting position. So a guy uh, drops down, rests a gun on his knee. Uh, we have noticed that people have problems getting their head all the way down onto their gun and have this tendency to shoot about, um, you know, 20 or 30% higher than if they were standing. So definitely a consideration. And one thing we have been doing with that, Terry, is since they're at Colorado Clays, um, you know, we always encourage gun mount drills and such, but go shoot around a trap. That will be 25 gun mount drills right there with the report of a gun. And that can be priceless, regardless of whether you're shooting a static or moving target. Um, just reinforce where that gun needs to land for you to hit where you're aiming. we got to go, JR, but if people want more information, how do they get a hold of you? Give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to the website, coloradoclays.com. 
and certainly take the virtual tour see what we're all about Terry. all right my friend we'll talk to you again soon okay thank you you bet bob when we come back i want to talk to you about uh what calls do I learn need absolutely need to know to get started, and maybe what do I need for a decoy? And then you got a big Pheasants Forever event coming up. We'll talk about all that after this time out on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Now, don't play Take It to the Limit when I only have a few minutes left to talk to Bob because, you know, I love this song. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. In studio with me is the regional director of Pheasants Forever, Bob Hicks, longtime friend. In fact, I think you appeared on my television show like a million years ago one time. Well, more than once. I yeah, think. well, I think, but it was a while. Yeah, it's been. And, of course, Ben, you and I have been talking turkey on the radio for, I'm not going to say how long because I don't know how old I am, but it's been a long time. Okay, I told you I wanted to cover. We only got a few minutes, so I want to cover Two things I want to talk about your upcoming pheasant banquet. First of all, I'm going to start turkey hunting. What calls do I need to know to get started, and how long will it take me? So there, there are three basic calls. There's um, a box call, um, and um, there's a slate call. Those are kind of two of the most popular um, that are called a friction call, and they're very easy to learn to use, both of those. But they require your hands. And so how do you hold your gun and call? So when you really get into turkey hunting and the hardest thing to master is a mouth call, which is called a diaphragm call, but you, I can go out and harvest a turkey with uh, just a slate, just a box, um, and just a diaphragm. Some days they like a box better. Some days they like a slate better. Some days they like a diaphragm call, but... You know, I recommend you either start with a slate or a box call and and master that call first. And when you really start getting into the sport, you can add more. And then there's a simple call like this, which is just a little push button call. And I'm just using the tip of my finger. And just so you folks know, it's a wooden box with a dowel that slides through it, and it's making friction. And he's just moving that wooden dowel through the box. That's just, you know, you can buy those calls uh, at most of the retail stores. So um, they've made turkey calls much easier, but, um, you know, a slate, most people, Terry, call too loud and too often because what you watch on TV nowadays when you see Will Primos on his great television show, um, and I've had the chance of meeting Will Primos and and you know they are out there trying to capture you know the most excited bird in the forest so they call loud and they call often so they could they're kick- also trying to sell calls yeah exactly <laughs> thank you yep they're trying to do that so what i've learned hunting wild birds especially smart turkeys cuz no matter where you hunt them you hear the phrase dumb as a turkey well that's that's a turkey living in a coop wild turkeys are really smart and once they get called to or shot at, they get really, really smart. So uh, I teach people to call less often and call softer. They have amazing hearing, and as long as it's not windy, they can hear you from a long way away. All right, real quick, because we got two more things to go in only a couple minutes. If I'm going to start, I, do I need a decoy, and what do I need to start with? If you, you, know, you can buy decoys singly. You can buy them in a set. When I hunt with decoys i like two hens and a jake decoy which is an immature gobbler um you're fine with just a single hen decoy but what happens when a big dominant gobbler comes in if he sees a less dominant bird 
like a Jake, which is a one-year-old male turkey, that excites him, and he comes in to run him off. So when you use decoys and you have a Jake decoy out, they never come to the hen decoy. They go to that junior, that teenager, and they're going to run him off. And how far away do you set those decoys? Again, I like to set my decoys about 20 yards from me because they don't necessarily always come right on top of your decoys. And then, you know, like Jr. and Terry were talking about patting your in your gun earlier, you have to know your limitation on your gun. So if you pattern it and and it only is killable at 30 yards, then maybe set them at 18 yards. But you know, I figure the turkey's going to stop around 10 yards short of my decoy and kind of look things over. So if I pace them out 20 yards, that gives me a you know 30 yard shot. Got a couple minutes left, real quick. You're the director, regional director of Pheasants Forever. You have a big event coming up next week. Tell us about that. So. Um, you know, Pheasants Forever is a national conservation group, Terry. We have raised and spent over $15 million just in Colorado on habitat education and outreach. Our banquet in Denver is next Saturday. Uh, our chapter is called South Metro Pheasants Forever, so just Google South Metro PF. We have a Colorado website, Colorado PF, Colorado Pheasants Forever. Um, online registration will close this coming Wednesday. Uh, if you have kids... Kids are welcome. We want kids. I can't divulge what's going to happen at our banquet next Saturday night, but if you bring a child there, whatever age, you won't be disappointed. We are a grassroots organization. We decide how the money is spent. It doesn't go to the national office. What pays my salary or memberships. Um, and a shout-out to a bunch of people that have been on the show today. Nate Zielinski, Discount Fishing Tackle, Austin Parr, a Topper and Colorado Clays are all sponsors and donors of our event. We're going to have uh, a fishing trip on live auction from Nate Zielinski. We're going to have a fishing trip from Austin Parr, Ron Lowry, other fly fishing trips. So people always ask me, why do we have so many fishing trips? Well, I used to have a fishing store, and I know a lot of fishermen. So, Well, and a lot of hunters are fishermen. It's a big crossover to anglers. And and there's there a lot of times they're happening at different times and so you you know, you're doing something year round. And you know, I'm a huge supporter of all the affinity groups, Bob, because I think there's several reasons. First, what you mentioned, the money to do the good work. We've had some phenomenal pheasant seasons in Colorado over the last ten years, and that's because of the habitat improvement that you guys have done. You guys do youth hunts, you get people out there. But also, here's a place that if you're getting into this activity, you can rub elbows with people that are like-minded, share information, and accelerate your learning. But then in the today's political climate, having a unified voice of affinity groups is so important. I'm a member of the National Wild Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited, Elk Foundation, Muley Fanatic Foundation. And I can't thank you enough for what you do promoting all of us, Terry. And and if anyone wants to know what, how to... Where to find a turkey? Come to the banquet next Saturday and find me. All right. Once again, the website. Uh, SouthMetroPF.org. All right. We're going to wrap things up here. Um, Tune in uh, every Saturday. We're usually 9 to 11, but this time of the year we bounce around a little bit. Uh, Check our Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and we'll keep you posted on that. And we'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour and uh, sports on 104.3 The Fan.